Section 36 of English Costume. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. English Costume by Dion Clayton Calthrop. Section 36. George III. Reigned 60 years, 1760 to 1820. Born 1738. Married 1761. Charlotte Sophia of Mecklenburg-Strelitz. The Men and Women. Throughout this long reign, the changes of costume are so frequent, so varied, and so jumbled together, that any precise account of them would be impossible. I have endeavoured to give a leading example of most kind of styles in the budget of drawings, which goes with this chapter. Details concerning this reign are so numerous, fashion books, fashion articles in the London Magazine, the St. James Chronicle, works innumerable on hair-dressing, tailor's patterns, these are easily within the reach of those who hunt the second-hand shops, or are within reasonable distance of a library. Following my drawings you will see in the first the ordinary wig, skirted coat, knee-breeches, chapeau-bras, cravat or waistcoat of the man about town. I do not mean of the exquisite about town, but, if you will take it kindly, just such clothes as you or I might have worn. In the second drawing we see a fashionable man who might have strutted past the first fellow in the park. His hair is dressed in a twisted roll. He wears a tight-brimmed little hat, a frogged coat, a fringed waistcoat, striped breeches, and buckled shoes. In the third we see the dress of a macaroni. On his absurd wig he wears a little never-noise hat. His cravat is tied in a bow, his breeches are loose, and be ribboned at the knee. Many of these macaronis wore coloured strings at the knee of their breeches, but the fashion died away when Jack ran, sixteen-string Jack, as he was called after this fashion, had been hung in this make of breeches. In number four we see the development of the tail-coat and the high-buttoned waistcoat. The tail-coat is, of course, sun to the frock-coat, the skirts of which, being inconvenient for riding, had first been buttoned back, and then cut back, to give more play. In the fifth drawing we see the double-breasted cutaway coat. Number six is but a further tail-coat design. Number seven shows how different were the styles at one time. Indeed, except for the macaroni and other extreme fashions, the entire budget of men as shown might have formed a crowd in the park on one day about twenty years before the end of the reign. There would not be much powdered hair after 1795, but a few examples would remain. A distinct change is shown in the eighth drawing of the long-tailed, full coat, the broad hat, the hair powdered, but not tied. Number nine is another example of the same style. The tenth drawing shows the kind of hat we associate with Napoleon, and in fact very Napoleonic garments. In eleven we have a distinct change in the appearance of English dress. The gentleman is a zebra, and is so called from his striped clothes. He is, of course, in the extreme of fashion, which did not last for long, but it shows a tendency toward later Georgian appearance. The top hat, the shorter hair, the larger neckcloth, the pantaloons, forerunners of Brummel's invention, the open sleeve. Number twelve shows us an ordinary gentleman in a coat and waistcoat, with square flaps called dog's ears. 
As the drawings continue, you can see that the dress became more and more simple, more like modern evening dress as to the coats, more like modern stiff fashion about the neck. The drawings of the women's dresses should also speak for themselves. You may watch the growth of the wig and the decline of the hoop, I trust with ease. You may see those towers of hair of which there are so many stories, those masses of meal and stuffing, powder and pomatum, the dressing of which took many hours. Those piles of decorated, perfumed, reeking mess, by which a lady could show her fancy for the navy by balancing a straw ship on her head, for sport by showing a coach, for gardening by a regular bed of flowers. Heads which were only dressed perhaps once in three weeks, and were then re-scented because it was necessary. Monstrous germ-gatherers of horse-hair, hemp-wool, and powder, laid on in a paste, the cleaning of which is too awful to give in full detail. Three weeks, says my lady's hairdresser, is as long as a head can go well in the summer, without being opened. Then we go on to the absurd idea which came over womankind, that it was most becoming to look like a powder pigeon. She took to a buffon, a gauze or fine linen kerchief, which stuck out pigeon-like in front, giving an exaggerated bosom to those who wore it. With this fashion of 1786 came the broad-brimmed hat. Travel a little further, and you have the mob-cap. All of a sudden, out go hoops, full skirts, high hair, powder, buffons, broad-brimmed hats, patches, high-heeled shoes, and in come willowy figures and thin, nearly transparent dresses, turbans, low shoes, straight fringes. I am going to give a chapter from a fashion-book to show you how impossible it is to deal with the vagaries of fashion in the next reign, and if I chose to occupy the space, I could give a similar chapter to make the confusion of this reign more confounded. End of section 36. Read by Kara Schallenberg, www.kray.org, in August 2010, in San Diego, California.